So congrats, you made it to the end of life. But where do we go next? Well, how about heaven? How do you get a place in heaven? It's actually really simple. After you die, you go to a community there and you look for your house. And if you see it there, you move in. But how do you get a house there? And what do you build it out of? Two by fours? Or does the fact that dream interpretation schools of all kinds see the house as a picture of our own minds and a scientist's reports of a journey to another world point to a very different kind of construction? That we might actually be building or destroying our own spiritual house by the kind of mind we're developing? But how high could we aim? Could we swap out our house for, let's say, God's house? What does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord? I mean, what's the school district like there? And is all this heaven stuff a move we could actually be making right now? Hello and welcome to the office of Dr. Jonathan Rose, Spiritual Realtor. Now, what were you hoping I could help you with today? Yes, thanks. I, I would, if possible, like to live in heaven. H how do you do that? Well, that is a very good choice here. And as to the how, let me just check my manual for a second. Uh, yeah, th this is the one. All right. Uh, uh, here it is. People's preparation for heaven occurs in the world of spirits which is midway between heaven and hell. To know everything about that, check out the episode from earlier in this series, What to Expect Immediately After You Die. Once the time of their preparation has come to an end, they're all seized with an intense longing for heaven. Soon their eyes are opened and they see a pathway to a community in heaven. They take this pathway and make their ascent. At the top, they come to a gated entrance with a guard. If they find their home, they stay there and send a report back to that effect. If they do not find a home there, they go back and say that they did not see one. So it sounds like what he's saying is, how do you get to stay in heaven? You go and see if there's already a house for you there. Well, that's a fascinating wrinkle. And it seems like even the person themselves, you don't even know if you have a house or not until you look around. So they didn't build it or arrange for somebody else to build it. So, so then, then where did that house come from that's just perfect for you? In this episode, we're gonna show you how the building materials of our spiritual home are essentially the contents of our own minds. Mm. And we're gonna teach you how to build one. And how not to build one. And in the end, we're all going to be equipped to end up in a really nice spiritual neighborhood with a really nice spiritual home. And we're going to know how we can start building it right now. Now? Get out of here. It's crazy stuff, right? So let's start by taking a look at just what homes in heaven are like. Mm. So before we go into all the psychological and spiritual work components, let's just get it out there. The houses in heaven are really beautiful. We've got a long, proud tradition here on Earth of house-watching shows from the mighty MTV Cribs in the 90s to Netflix's The World's Most Extraordinary Homes to Escape to the Country and on and on. So we think some homes in this world are pretty cool. I'm actually standing on the top floor of a museum that used to be a house. And Swedenborg ran in the circles of the nobility so he would have seen all the palaces and things in his day. And his message was, and I'm paraphrasing, if we were making a best of houses show that included heaven, 
Nothing in the whole world would make the cut. He wrote, I have seen palaces in heaven that were so splendid as to be beyond description. Their upper stories shone as though they were made of pure gold, and their lower ones as though they were made of precious gems. Each palace seemed more splendid than the last. It was the same inside. The rooms were graced with such lovely adornments that neither words nor the arts and sciences are adequate to describe them. On the side that faced south, there were parklands where everything sparkled in the same way. Here and there the leaves like silver and the fruits like gold, while the flowers in their beds made virtual rainbows with their colors. On the horizon of sight there were other palaces that framed the scene. The architecture of heaven is like this, so that you might call it the very essence of the art, and small wonder, since the art itself does come to us from heaven. The art, or the essence of architecture itself, comes to us from heaven. So obviously there's going to be beauty in the surroundings, but look at this comment on the way this beauty is processed. Angels tell me that things like this and countless others even more perfect are presented to their view by the Lord, but that such sights actually delight their minds more than their eyes, because they see correspondences in the details. And through their correspondences, they see things divine. So it's not even that, you know, the tile in the kitchen is nice, but that the real power is in everything representing God or the divine. And it's not just Swedenborg describing these palaces and how heaven might have been. Back in the 18th century, there's all kinds of modern accounts from people who have had their own spiritual experiences. I saw that I had a house made entirely of rubies. These precious stones were affixed to the walls in the hundreds of thousands to millions. I saw that I have a very pleasant home in the realm. It actually has a flowing stream that moves through the house and into a lovely lush floral garden in the back. I saw that the furniture was very similar to what we have here on earth, only more round and simplistic with much more cushion. Comfy heaven chairs, which is awesome. And so everything sounds pretty good, right? But there's two potential issues to clear up. One. Are those houses right for me? What if I don't want some big palace? And two, what's so angelic about having a big house in the first place? Don't we see on the news there's all kinds of dictators and crime bosses that have these really extravagant living situations. You can have a really selfish mind inside an opulent estate, but in heaven, that's impossible because the mind is the house. Rather than having some external building built that does or doesn't reflect who you are, your house in heaven is a direct reflection of your mind. So that also solves our problem back in number one. It doesn't have to be opulence. It's what fits your mind the best. Swedenborg describes some of the highest angels actually living in tents. There's this whole spectrum of housing complexity and tastes. So you're not going to be stuck in some stuffy situation that you don't like. So moving on, we said before that in an angelic house things represent the divine, but can we break that down a bit more? On this matter of correspondences, I have also been told that not only the palaces and the homes, but all the little things within and outside them correspond to the deeper qualities that they receive from the Lord. In general terms, their houses correspond to the good that occupies them and the items within their houses to the various things that constitute that good. The items that are outside the homes refer to true things that derive from the good and also to experiences of perception and recognition. This, they tell me, is the sort of thing angels perceive when they look at their houses. And this is why these sights delight and move their minds more than their eyes. So they're seeing the divine in the objects around them, and it's this divine inflow through them that's bringing those objects into being. So it's essentially like having God as your interior decorator. 
Check out what Swedenborg says having an enlightened mind can do for your walks. The objects in their houses look like diamonds, with similar variegations of light. I've been told that their walls look like crystal, and are therefore also translucent, and that within them one can see what looks like fluid forms, representative of heavenly things, again with constant variety. This is because this kind of translucence corresponds to an intellect that has been enlightened by the Lord. And it seems like there's a cascading effect, like God is sending things through the different levels of heaven that actually affect the homes along the way. He writes, The ancients knew that silver corresponded to truth and gold to goodness, and they knew it from communication with spirits and angels. When the inhabitants of a higher heaven discuss goodness, something gold appears down among the inhabitants of the first or outermost heaven below them. When they discuss truth, something silver appears there. Sometimes the manifestation is such that not only the walls of the rooms where they live, but even the air itself sparkles with gold and silver. Among angels of the first or outermost heaven devoted to goodness because it is good, there also appear tables, lampstands, and many other objects of gold. Among those devoted to truth because it is true, there appear similar objects of silver. So however exactly the whole thing works, one nifty feature is that it's all self-upgrading. The houses of good spirits and angelic spirits usually have porticos, or long entryways, vaulted and sometimes doubled where they walk. The walls of the walkways are formed in many different ways and are graced with flowers and flower garlands woven in an extraordinary manner, not to mention other kinds of decoration that change and replace one another, as noted. These details appear to them in brighter light at one time in weaker light at another, but always offering profound pleasure. Their houses also turn more beautiful as the spirits grow in perfection. When the houses are undergoing change, something representing a window appears at the side and widens, and the inside grows darker. A piece of starry sky appears, as does a kind of cloud which is a sign that their houses are changing into even more enchanting ones. So the house is an expression of your mind, which means to get a heavenly house, we've got to build a heavenly mind. And we're about to get to that. But first, let's pause for a minute to fill out our understanding of the connection between the two. And Karin has a fascinating bit of information that Swedenborg picked up on his travels. According to Swedenborg's descriptions of how things work in the afterlife, it seems like going into a house there can actually affect how you think and what you feel interested in. This is just one of so many fascinating examples of mental and emotional states affecting the outward appearance of things in the spiritual world. This one comes from an entry in Swedenborg's Journal of Spiritual Experiences, where he describes a few aspects of the connection between dwelling places and how they interface with the psychology of the spirits that go into them. The case with the apartments of buildings is that, depending on their location, the inhabitant and others in one apartment do not have the same temperament as those in another. Their pleasures vary, so that in one apartment there is the pleasure of applying oneself and functioning in one's position, in another the pleasure of travel, in another the pleasure of conversation, and in another the pleasure of being with one's spouse, in another the pleasure of eating, and in another they have a close communication with those outside. 
in others a more remote communication. So you have a building that reflects the general region of the spiritual world that it's in, and you have the enjoyment of different activities kind of baked into these different apartment spaces. Instead of the enjoyments being affected by the people who happen to be in the room at the time, it seems like the room itself can actually dictate what happens there. Spirits know, as if of themselves, that when they go into a particular room, they have the possibility of doing this or that and so on, with great variety, and depending on their likings. The cause of this comes particularly from the regions and from the temperaments of those dwelling in those regions. Rather than everyone just doing whatever they want in any living space, spirits can actually feel drawn to the space that will let them participate in the lifestyle or activity they're looking for. Swedenborg said this is caused by the four quarters, which is the phenomenon that all the compass directions in the spiritual world have an emotional and cognitive component to them. People go in the direction and to the location that matches their state of mind. For more about that, see our show, The Different Kinds of Angels. This spiritual mechanism will lead us to get a strong feeling about where we fit in, in every space that we enter. Everyone also knows his or her own place in the room, the place that suits the person's temperament. Spirits go there as soon as they enter, and if someone else appears in their place, they go out. It is the same in churches. This is the case in these particular instances because the greatest and the least forms in the heavens are similar in such a manner that there is an image of heaven in each detail. It's a very interesting idea to ponder. It seems that just as there is a home in a particular heavenly community that suits us, there's a place within every home and every building that feels like our place because it corresponds to what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. This is amazing because it shows just how intertwined spiritual spaces are with the states of mind, but also because it shows the value of each unique person. Each person can occupy a space and bring a perspective to all situations that no one else can. So Swedenborg has all these layers of connection between our minds and homes, which if you think about it is a pretty wild assertion, but is he alone in connecting those two? Yeah, you'd think that if this is really a fundamental truth about a huge part of human existence, that our mind is intimately connected to the home we live in, in the spiritual world, we should see some kind of ripple effect of this house-mind connection in the wider culture. Yeah, and do you feel like we see that? Well, I can't connect the dots directly, but there are places where a dynamic like this does seem to show up. We've found that Swedenborg isn't alone in the idea that a person's mind shapes their house in the spiritual world. Maybe you remember the 1998 movie, What Dreams May Come. In it, Robin Williams' character encounters his wife in a dilapidated version of their physical world house. It clearly reflects his deceased wife's confused and despairing state of mind. Granted, the author who wrote the book that the movie was based on drew from Swedenborg, but he was also influenced by others, so we don't know where he got the idea of the house-mind parallel for sure. But it obviously resonated and worked for that story. A major place where we see this house-mind connection is in dream symbolism. There may not be one central standard for dream interpretation, but the idea of houses as images of our mental and emotional life are very much in the culture. If you just Google, what does a house mean in dreams, you'll see this come up in the top results. Our dreams about houses and the rooms in them can have many significant meanings. 
the structure of the house itself tends to symbolize our self, while the rooms of that house tend to symbolize specific aspects of selfhood. The meaning of your specific dream about a house depends on the message your subconscious self is trying to send you. And then there's this from dreammoods.com. Your dream house is symbolic of the self, while the rooms inside the house relate to various aspects of the self and to the many facets of your personality. The attic refers to the mind, while the basement represents the subconscious. It then goes on to list what specific components like the presence of a chimney or a closet say about you. It's almost like a list of correspondences. Some of this may have been influenced by Carl Jung. He had a famous dream of a house that he interpreted as concerning his own psyche. It was a house he had never seen, but in the dream he knew it was his house. Haven't we all had that experience? I had this dream and I was in a house that was my house, but it wasn't my house. Anyway, in his dream, he started in an upper story furnished in the style of his time or just before. But when he descended to the lower level, everything was from what he estimated to be more like the 15th or 16th century. He went down another flight of stairs into a cellar that had built in Roman times and finally descended into a cave below the house filled with the remains of an ancient culture. He writes about it in his book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. It was plain to me that the house represented a kind of image of the psyche, that is to say, of my then state of consciousness, with hitherto unconscious additions. Consciousness was represented by the salon. It had an inhabited atmosphere in spite of its antiquated style. The ground floor stood for the first level of the unconscious. The deeper I went, the more alien and the darker the scene became. In the cave, I discovered remains of a primitive culture, that is, the world of the primitive man within myself, a world which can scarcely be reached or illuminated by consciousness. That's a very striking and direct connection that Jung makes. And if he and Swedenborg are right, we may be seeing some ripples of the same spiritual archetype in other less overt instances. For example, houses are used as a literary device to represent the minds of the people living there. Think of the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, where the narrator literally sees herself or a reflection of herself trapped in the yellow wallpaper of the room she sleeps in. Or Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher, in which the narrator is witness to the escalating deterioration of his friend's mental state and his friend's house in tandem. A lighter example, the old large country house in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a metaphorical extension of the new perspective the professor gives the children, and the wardrobe itself becomes a portal to another world. In the more contemporary vein of self-help, there's been a lot of study on how the state of our living space affects our mental state. There's been a big current trend of the idea that decluttering your physical environment will declutter your mind. So the idea is certainly in the air on some level that a house can be a reflection of the mind. And Swedenborg is going so far as to say that our house in the spiritual world actually is an extension of our mind and spiritual state. But in the intro to this show, we mentioned how the Bible makes a pretty big deal of dwelling in the Lord's house. Do you have to choose between the two? Between your house and the Lord's? Yeah, wait a second. I want to cancel my previous order. I know, like, going up to a heavenly path and there's a custom mind house up there. That's cool and all. But actually, I would rather have the Lord's house. I didn't know that was available. How do I get in there? What neighborhood in heaven does the Lord live in? Does he have a pool? Right. And is it salt water or chlorine? (laughs) It's very curious because the house of the Lord is definitely a thing in Scripture. But what kind of thing is it? And where does it fit in with everything else we've been talking about? Are you going to tell us? 
I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so the phrase house of the Lord appears at least 229 times in the Bible. And often the house of the Lord seems to be this grand goal we're trying to reach, the highest good. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. The Lord was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And perhaps most famously, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So two themes seem to be emerging here. God wants us to live in His house, and He wants us to live there forever. But wait a minute, what's all this stuff we were going on about earlier in this episode about finding your home in heaven? I mean, yeah, it sounds great and it's got great architecture, but now that we know that the Lord's house is on the market, wouldn't we just ditch all that other stuff? I mean, I've got this amazing scoop. The Lord is inviting me to live in His house forever. Oh, wait, the Lord is talking to all of us there. So we're all invited? How are we all going to fit there? Bunk beds? How can it be that we each have this special heavenly house we're working toward and we're being invited to and striving toward living in the Lord's house forever? Well, if we already made the point in this show that when we're talking about spiritual houses, we're talking about a direct reflection of a state of mind, could it be that the Lord is not inviting us to a building that we will live in forever, but a permanent state of mind? Swedenborg writes, outward religion is called the steward of a household when real internal religion is the household itself and when the head of the house is the Lord. And as you may know, if you've been hanging around Swedenborg a bit, internal religion is the state of our heart and mind when we're in what's good and true. And wait a second, if we're building a religion inside us, which will then lead to the expression of our heavenly home, and the blueprint for that house is everything we learn about what to love and how to think from the Lord through all the forms of His Word and inspiration and insight, and if, as Swedenborg says, it's actually the Lord giving us the desire for these good things and arranging them in us, if the Lord is providing the materials and the plan and His divine omnipotence is financing the whole thing, whose house is it? When we finally get to this mindset where everything is happy and peaceful and alive, as we find our place in heaven, we're finally coming to rest in the house of the Lord. So any personal house that we've been building through the heavenly mindset is the Lord's house. All of the love and truth that makes heaven is the Lord's house. So just know as we go in now to describe the good stuff that we can do to build a heavenly house, we're really describing how the Lord can build a unique house of His in us. But. Before we get to the good stuff, I think it's best practices to start out with what not to do. Right. Here are some pitfalls to avoid before you get started. 
Here we're going to look at some spiritual houses that Swedenborg saw on his journeys, but they didn't end up in the heavenly state. And mm. we're going to dissect what went wrong with that. Remember in the last show we did about what hell is really like, we learned that everything negative also reflects state of mind. So let's look at some specific instances. And we're going to have a focus here on windows and roofs. So this is from Swedenborg's Journal of Spiritual Experiences, entitled About Demons and Their Hell. Along with certain spirits, I was let down into some hell of demons that was at the back. But it was granted to see only a little, because it was dangerous for vision not to be blocked here. Mm. For the result would be that their operations would immediately flow in, which are extremely damaging. So he's in a dangerous neighborhood already. There were walls as of a great building, but without roof and without windows. In place of windows are great openings. It was said there that they cannot dwell in houses that have roofs and windows, and that in case they do, they experience tightness, as if they are being suffocated. The reason is because windows signify those things which are of thought, and roofs mean what holds them together. You might think that no windows or a roof would be nice if you had the right climate, but right, here right. it definitely seems to have a negative connotation. What do you think about this phrase, windows signify those things which are of thought and roofs mean what hold them together? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's not something Swedenborg talks a whole lot about elsewhere, but what I'm thinking is that they object to the structure of it. You know, there are people like that. They, they don't want the structure. They don't want their thoughts to cohere or make sense in that way. Okay, yeah. So they're somehow rejecting an important component of the divine design. So windows and roofs serve and reflect a, a pretty important function for the mind. Right. And now we could look, if you want, at a house that does have a roof but no windows. Of course I do. And Swedenborg writes that that's a reflection of another mindset. Again, in his spiritual experiences, he writes, about those who foretell future events and are anxious about things to come. Spoiler alert, that might be the yeah, type yeah. of people we're talking about. I'm definitely the second one. In my sleep, I saw a wooden house having a roof but no windows. And on the third floor, there were some people. When I was coming toward them by what seemed like a bridge, they did not want to let me in. Having been cast down, they really didn't want them in there. I tried to climb up, not by ropes, but by intertwined threads, whatever that is, using the little spaces on the walls, the nooks and crannies, I tried to raise myself up to arrive again at the third floor, taking the risk that I might fall, but I was not able to get up there. Awakening, I heard that someone else was also climbing up. So, so he's, like, he's awake, but the dream is still happening. Yeah, which is really scary. And it was repeatedly said that he's now entering, whoever this climber was, and in fact, by an entrance under the roof, those who lived there did not want to admit anyone. They didn't want to let anybody in there. And they were said to live on the roof. When I asked who these people were, I was told that they are those who during life foretell things to come. Mm -hmm. mm, and now I'm told those who are anxious about the morrow and do not trust in the Lord's providence. These seem to themselves to live in such houses, and in fact, on the rooftops and in the dark quarters under the roofs. And the house appears to be of wood without windows. Instead of windows, there are openings, and those who want to be of that character climb up the same way, that is, by intertwined or bundled threads, in spite of the risks. 
It's fascinating that these people live on and then just under their roofs, which has got to be a correspondence with the kind of foresight that they want. And, but they're in these cramped quarters, living in these dark corners under the roofs. It's got to reflect their mind. It reminds me of how Swedenborg wrote that worry about the future can greatly impede the inflow of spiritual mm. life. It seems like these incomplete houses result from not accepting the full divine design. God is offering us a way to think and act that does create a complete living space, but it's up to us to take it. So this might be a good time for us to look at how we can take God up on that offer. So what's the mind house of heaven? Well, it's really what all of Swedenborg's writings are about and what we spend all of our time on this channel looking into. But it's tricky for me to say to you, here's exactly how to build your house in your mind because everybody's mind is different. Swedenborg actually says that nobody's mind is exactly like anyone else's, so no one's heaven is exactly like anyone else's. That's between you and the divine, how the thing actually gets built and what it is. You know, there's no cookie-cutter neighborhoods in heaven. But I think we can arm you here with two construction techniques, or two broad facets of a really good mind house. The first is getting your levels straight. Swedenborg writes, the human mind is like a three-story house with stairs that provide transitions between levels. There are angels from heaven living on the top floor, people of the world on the middle floor, and demons on the bottom floor. People for whom these three categories of love have been prioritized in the right way can go up or down wherever they want. The three categories of love and how to prioritize them. In brief, that's making the love of heaven or love of doing useful things to benefit others the most important thing, then making worldly sorts of perks the next most important thing, then making your own consideration for your reputation and status the least important thing relative to the others. For a seven-minute dive into that, check out our clip, The Universal Categories of Love, or if you'd like to do an hour-plus deep dive where we break it into four levels, separating love of heaven into love of God and love of the neighbor, then check out The Four Kinds of Love. So we've got these levels in our minds with these different inhabitants, and what does it give us when we get our love priorities straight? Swedenborg says, when they, meaning we in our mind, go up to the top floor, they are like angels among the angels there. When they go down to the middle floor, they are like angelic people with the people there. And when they go even farther down, they are like worldly people with the demons there. They give the demons instructions, confront them, and tame them. So it's all about self-control and mobility because look, the inhabitants in the house didn't change. You'd think once you get the level straightened out, then the demons are out of there. But no, whether you think of them as literal demons or negative feelings, you gain the ability to tame them and tell them to behave rather than them you know, pushing you around and running things. We're going to have negative stuff in our minds, but that negative stuff doesn't have to run the place. It's not that you don't have a basement, but if your basement is on top of your house, then it's a problem. Okay, so number two, the family in the house. Now, before we even get into this, you may be saying, you're putting too much rigidity on this, man. The mind is just a sea of ideas. It doesn't have structure like the levels of a house or whatever you're about to talk about next. But even though it doesn't always seem like it from inside our minds, there actually is an order to the stuff in there. And you don't even have to take Swedenborg's word for that broad principle. Modern psychology is asserting this too. When a psychologist thinks about the mind, they certainly do think about organization. The mind is very organized. Uh, constellations of information called schema 
are interconnected. So, um, you know, we have a lot of information about a lot of different topics, and sometimes we think that this is just in the mind willy-nilly, but it's actually very well organized. So that's an important thing to know about the mind vis-a-vis cognitive psychology is that things are very organized, such that if you prime one idea, at the same time you're priming a lot of nearby ideas. So there are, like, entities within the mind, and those are called schema. So there is an order, and Swedenborg takes this in a fascinating direction, in a way claiming that the schema have particular relationships to each other, even in a way that reflects a family unit. He writes, a house in an inner sense means the earthly mind, which resembles a house, as the rational mind also does. The husband therein is goodness, the wife is truth, the daughters and sons are desires for what is good and true, and also the goodness and truth born from the kind represented by their parents. Fascinating. So I'm not going to try to micromanage how you apply that to your mind, but just let the concept sit with you. If those things in you are like a family, are they getting along? Are they communicating well? Are the parents looking out for the children, but also setting boundaries on what we need to pursue when necessary? How can we get that family to more reflect the divine design? Okay, by this point, you may be feeling overwhelmed. There's so many bits of information we've been giving you throughout the course of this show. So here's a good reminder of what's really at the heart of the whole thing. Swedenborg's uh, biggest insights into personality psychology are on two fronts. How do people differ from each other? So some person's main focus is on loving God or loving other people, whereas someone else might be focused more on self and the world around him or her. And so those differences are important and they are even eternally important. But I would say the second front where Swedenborg offers a lot in our understanding of personality has to do with development of personality and especially development of character. But again, he doesn't separate character out from personality or mental health. And so, especially with the idea of, uh, you know, repentance, reforming your life, uh, you know, receiving God's uh, love and truth into your life in the form of regeneration. So he has a lot to say, uh, remnants out of early childhood. He has a lot to say about personality, character, uh, development, and mental health. And he has a lot to say about what he believes is the most important unit of analysis. It's not the self-concept, it's not the instinct, it's not the need, it's not the uh, whatever else the unit of analysis might be. It's the love, it's the, the focus of the person's heart that really distinguishes one person from another and also distinguishes a person over time developmentally. That can change. Uh, the trajectory of a person's heart can change over time developmentally. And I think that's profound. So the building materials for our house in heaven are actually the contents of our own mind. Morality, ethics, love, truth. These are like the blueprint for the heavenly home. And, and the thoughts and feelings that we treasure the most actually manifest themselves in the built environment. And if we allow the divine to organize things right, we can end up in these phenomenal living conditions. So we've seen our journey after death, from what happens immediately after to the hell option and the conditions that creates, and now the heaven option in this episode. We've got a general sense of how the journey works, but wouldn't it be cool to have some specific examples? Now we're going to look at Swedenborg's direct accounts of how this journey after death played out for famous people in history. That's next in What Happens to Celebrities in the Afterlife. 
We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we share all the content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving, to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider joining our community of sustaining supporters by signing up to give a monthly donation. Go to otle.cosvox.com and follow the prompts to set up a recurring donation at a value of your choice. Any amount helps. Our sustaining supporters are the backbone of what we do at Off the Left Eye and allow us to continue to create high-quality programming. Your support helps the ideas in our content reach and nourish thousands of people every week around the globe. We couldn't do it without you. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.